Now those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was kill killed travelled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus and Antioch, spreading the word only among the Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw what the grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and through the spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, as each one was able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. This they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we pray this morning that you would open our ears to hear a life-changing message for the glory of our Savior. We are so frequently on the receiving end of messages, some that are true, some that are untrue, and yet only your word can liberate us and make us holy. And so, Father, we pray that you would do what only you can do as the word is broken to us now. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We continue our series in the book of Acts this morning. And the point of our passage today is this. God's grace makes insiders of outsiders. That's worth repeating. God's grace makes insiders of outsiders. A number of years ago now, a friend of mine had moved from the US to South Wales to serve a church as an evangelist. And he was getting used to driving on the wrong side of the road when he accidentally did something to annoy another driver. The annoyed driver pulled his car beside my friend's car, and in his own words, here is what happened next. Like a, a bad kung fu film, his mouth was moving, but nothing intelligible could be heard through the glass of his car window. I thought no more of it, pulling over to park in front of the church, but as I made my way around the building, he was across the street beckoning me to come over to the entrance of an alley, postured like he wanted to tell me a secret. The secret was that he was going to beat a hole into the street with my head. 
Unaware of his intentions, I crossed the street to explain myself. Since I was going into a church building, I didn't want him to associate my stupidity with Jesus. Rounding the corner, I approached him, attempting to explain myself with the universal blanket statement for stupidity in the UK. I'm a yank. That usually did the trick. As I got within reach, he lunged at me, screaming. I'm a short guy, five feet, seven inches. He hefted me effortlessly off the ground, my feet dangling inches above terra firma. For a half a second, it was as if my childhood dream of being an astronaut was being fulfilled. (laughs) Then the shaking started. He simultaneously shook me and bellowed obscenities into my face. He shook so hard that the next day, bruises formed in the shapes of his fists from where he'd bunched my sweater in his hands. Then the throwing started. Depending on your point of view, the brick wall that stopped the throwing could have been a bad or a good thing. But before I had time to get to my feet, he utilized a rugby move, flipping me face down. Then the hitting started. All 500 pounds of pressure per square inch of haymaker barreled down on the back of my skull, only the asphalt getting between me and oblivion. And he hammered me in, as he hammered me into unconsciousness, my forehead split open, crunching the front of my skull into the pavement. The solitary eyewitness, a woman parking her car across from the alleyway, later reported to the police that he appeared to have no intention of stopping. He shouted, she shouted repeatedly, he's killing him, as he rained down blows on my limp form. Her panic screams probably saved my life. Now, you've probably never felt as much an outsider as my friend did on that one particular day, but you have felt like an outsider at some point in your life, and it was not a pleasant experience, was it? When perhaps the in-laws treated you with suspicion for an unusually long period of time. When a previous employer sat you down, looked you in the eye, and said, it's just not working out for you here. When older people assumed incompetence on your part because you're younger. Or when younger people assumed irrelevance on your part because you are older. When you moved country. Or when you were benched and never got the opportunity to play. Feeling like an outsider is never fun. And and what we crave in those moments is for someone on the inside to pull us in. And to include us. Well, last Sunday morning, God commanded the early, mostly Jewish church to pull the Gentiles in and to accept them as insiders. And regardless of biology, family, nationality, color, status, or class, God's people were to show no partiality among those who had trusted Jesus for salvation because he's all that we need to become insiders. And the passage, you remember, revolved around that guy Cornelius. He was an unclean Gentile, just like us, but he had trusted Jesus for salvation. He'd received the Holy Spirit, and he'd therefore become a fully-fledged member of God's kingdom, despite the fact that he'd never been circumcised. Some were skeptical of Cornelius, but the last words of last week's passage went like this. Then to the Gentiles, also God has granted repentance that leads to life. And and that happens 
again in our passage today. Only it happens en masse as a mostly Gentile city receives the gospel of Jesus for the first time. And my prayers for those of you who are here today and who are believers is that you will pray for God to do in Hoylake what he did in Antioch all those years ago. And that God would be pleased to use this sermon to rekindle a fire of enthusiasm within you for God's work in this town. My prayer for those of you who are here today who are not yet Christians is that you would step with both feet into the kingdom of Christ. And that as you hear about these Gentiles coming all the way into God's saving kingdom, you will follow them all the way into the very heart of it by simply trusting Christ, leaving the barrenness of this world for the blessings of the kingdom. God's grace makes insiders of outsiders. And I want us to see today first the means of grace, that is, How did God's grace make insiders of outsiders in the city of Antioch? Well, number one then, the means of grace. Look with me, please, at verse 19 of chapter 11. It says, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. Antioch was about 300 miles north of Jerusalem. Speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, Men of Cyprus and Cyrene who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also. Hellenists here being Greek-speaking Gentiles. They came, we're told, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Now friends, please don't miss the divine irony in what we just read. The outsiders in Antioch became insiders because the insiders in Jerusalem themselves became outsiders. Uh, Because the Jewish believers in Jerusalem were thrust out of the city, the result was outsiders in Antioch being pulled into the kingdom. And the blood of the first martyr Stephen really was the seed of the church in Antioch. From a human perspective, an awakening in Antioch seemed impossible. These were refugees. Uh, These were men and women who'd arrived at Antioch with little more than the clothes that they had on their back. And meanwhile, Antioch was the third largest city in the world, just behind Rome and Alexandria. It was founded in 300 BC by one of Alexander the Great's generals. And by the time we come to Acts chapter 11, it had a population of half a million people. And it was so beautiful visibly that it it earned itself the title Antioch the Beautiful or Queen of the East. There was this four-mile main street that ran through the city. It was paved with marble, and it was flanked by a double colonnade with trees and fountains. It was the only city in the ancient world that was lighted at night. It had an aqueduct, baths, two temples. It had the Pantheon. It had theaters. It hosted even the Olympic-style games from time to time. Residents from Persia and India and China were there, and and yet Antioch became the launch pad became the base camp 
of the mission to reach the Gentiles of the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. How? Because a bunch of refugees showed up with a gospel to proclaim. That's how. That was the means of grace in Antioch. It was the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ in human weakness and in the power of the Holy Spirit. That was the means then and that is the means today. It's not drama. It's not emotional manipulation. It's not altar calls. It's not decisionalism. It's not even baptism. It is the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul would put it like this. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews, folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Sometime before God called me here, I was reading a biography And one paragraph moved me so much that I ripped it out of the book and framed it and put it in the study that I work in now. Part of it says this, I do not look for any other means of converting men beyond the simple preaching of the gospel and the opening of men's ears to hear it. The moment the church of God shall despise the pulpit, God God will despise her. It has been through the ministry that the Lord has always been pleased to revive and bless his churches. If Antioch isn't proof enough, let me take you to Geneva in the year 1815. There was a Scotsman on holiday with his wife. The name of the Scotsman was Robert Haldane. And he was sat on a park bench one day and he got talking with some students at a theological college who were training for the ministry. This college was so opposed to anything remotely evangelical that the students were said to have blushed whenever they even heard so much of the name of Jesus Christ. And Haldane began to speak with them. And Haldane opened the book of Romans with them. And not only were those men converted, but a mighty revival set on blaze all around the city of Geneva. And one of the uh, lecturers, one of the professors of the school that those students were at, wrote a letter to Haldane asking him what in the world had gotten in to these students. And the answer then was the answer in Antioch. The gospel of Jesus Christ. Crucified for sinners. Raised to life on the third day. Ascended to heaven as Lord and God and Christ and King. And so allow me to say, if you're here today and perhaps you're looking for a church, we have very little to offer you by way of production value. We, we have very little to offer you by way of entertainment or gimmicks or bells and whistles, anything like that. We're content with open Bibles and a gospel to proclaim. The same means of grace that made insiders, out, uh, made out, insiders of outsiders in Antioch is the same means of grace that makes insiders of outsiders 
in Hoylake. But allow me to say, if, if HEC is your home church, please don't sit there today and think to yourself, yeah, amen, Hugh, we're praying for you as you preach the gospel of Christ. Because did you notice here, this was something for everyone to be involved with. This wasn't just the pastor. This was all men and all women. And the reality is you don't need a Britney Spears microphone on your face or a 40-minute message to preach the gospel. You only need to know the gospel in order to be able to articulate the gospel. And so the very simple point of application for all of us here today is this. Do it. Do it. Over lunch with a a colleague, on the phone with a, a family member, on a walk with a friend, over a meal at a restaurant, in the car, on your way to work, over the garden fence, whatever it is, preaching is the means by which God uses to make insiders of outsiders. But preaching necessitates a preacher. And that's where we come in. That's what God has called us to do. I want us to see, second, the response to grace. Look with me at verse 22. It says, The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. Remember last Sunday morning, I used an illustration about the James Webb Space Telescope. And since it's more powerful than Hubble, the pictures that it sent back to us have been unlike anything we've been able to see before. And I mentioned that one of the lessons we've learned is that there is more out there than we had ever previously understood And that that news has been met with great excitement within the scientific community and within the communities of people just like you and me. But last week when we saw that God told his people there was more to his saving purposes in Christ than one nation and one ethnic group. Instead of that being met with excitement, it was met with great fear and hesitation. But as Barnabas the man with the biggest heart in the early church, as someone once put it, heard all about and saw the grace of God, he was glad. And he responded to the grace of God in just the right way, with the soul overflowing with joy and gladness. The son of encouragement was himself encouraged. And he saw these new believers He looked in their eyes and he thought to himself, more sinners saved. Wow, more rebels rescued from hell. More blind eyes opened. More brands plucked from the fire. More chains broken. And best of all, more glory given to Christ. And then his gladness gave way to exhortation. A word of exhortation to faithfulness. Why would that be? Friends, because wherever God is at work, the devil is at work as well. Wherever God is at work, the devil is at work as well. And the devil's battle plan is rarely harm. Instead, it's deception. 
He, he can't storm the kingdom of Christ. He can't invade the kingdom of Christ. And so what he does instead is shout to those who were inside the kingdom of Christ. And he'll shout things to us like this. What you've received is all well and good. But what you really need is this experience over here. What you've experienced is all well and good from the apostles, but here's a revelation of your own. Trust in this instead. And, and all this talk about fleeing from sin, it's, it's just legalism. You're under grace. And when he did, the love of many grows cold. And so Barnabas exhorts them to faithfulness. What is Christian faithfulness? It is doing life Jesus' way, not our way, for Jesus' glory, not our own. Life Jesus' way, not our way, for Jesus' glory, not our own. That's Christian faithfulness. And it's true that when we're unfaithful, Jesus remains faithful. But wouldn't you agree that when we are unfaithful, we stop feeling like the insiders that we really are? We, we, we stop feeling like the insiders we really are. We end up feeling out of place in the kingdom. And we end up feeling out of place in the world. And so we feel like we have nowhere to belong at all. Speaking of someone like this, someone once said, he was once clothed in armor of proof and was not afraid of sword or spear. But now that he has lost his master's presence, such is his nakedness that every thorn pierces him and every briar fetches blood from him. Yea, his spirit is pierced through and through with anxious thoughts, which once would have been his scorn. How are the mighty fallen? How are the princes taken in a net and the nobles cast in the mire of the street? He who could do all things can now do nothing. And he who could rejoice in deep distress is now mourning in the midst of blessing. He is like a chariot without wheels or horses a harp without strings, a river without water, and a sail without wind. No songs and music now. His harp is hanging upon the willows. It is vain to ask of him a song, for the chief musician upon his stringed instruments has ceased to lead the choir. But when we're faithful, when we do life Jesus' way for Jesus' glory, not our way for our glory, then we feel as accepted as we really are. See, it's one thing to know that we are adopted. It's another thing altogether to feel like a child of God. It's one thing to know in your brain that you're a citizen of heaven. It is another thing altogether to have heaven abiding in your heart. There is a world and a half between the two experiences. Friend, don't settle for the one when you can have the other. And what should you do if you've been unfaithful? What should you do if right now you are in a state of unfaithfulness in your life? Friend, you should return to the faithful one because he hasn't moved. He's right where you left him. 
And he will be found if you seek him with all of your heart. Return to him today. And have him clothe you with those robes that he clothed you with at first. And have him put that ring on your finger that you lost once again. And have him spread that table for you in the wilderness. I want us to see thirdly, the nurturing of grace. Look with me, friends, at verse 25. It says, so Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. I want to make sure that the context of those verses is really clear in our minds. Verse 24 says, and a great many people were added to the Lord. And then the next word in verse 25 is, so. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. Why? What's with the so? Well, because the souls that had received the grace of God now needed the truth of God. Truth is to the soul what food is to the body. So that yes, it is grace that makes insiders of outsiders and it's then truth that builds them up when they arrive. It's why Jesus was both full of grace and truth. And who better to impart the truth than Saul of Tarsus? Not only had he the keenest grasp of the Old Testament in all of the world, But the call that God had placed on his life was to take the name of Jesus before the Gentiles. I remember hearing a children's talk when I was really, really young in church once. And maybe the reason I remember it so well is because it's pretty dark. But it's uh, it's about a man who is able to rig dogfights. And he could rig them with a 100% success rate. And every week he knew which dog would win. And every week he knew which dog would lose. And he told a trusted friend in time, he said, the dog that I've chosen to win, I feed. And the dog that I've chosen to lose, I starve. If you're going to have the strength to lift up the sword of the spirit and to raise the shield of faith, your soul is going to need nourishment. If you are going to withstand the the lies of the enemy, his half-truths, his accusations, his false promises, then you're going to need to feed your soul on the truth. But it's not just truth in general, it's truth as it relates to Jesus Christ. It was at Antioch that the believers were first called Christians. Think about that for a a moment, friend. This city had been unreached with the gospel up until now. And after a, a year of teaching the truth of God, the nickname was not Saulians. It, it, it wasn't Barnabasians. It was Christians. And that Latin suffix, Ian, just means belonging to the party of. And you see, friends, it's the truth of Christ that's the remedy for every battle. The truth of Jesus sufficient for every trial, for every danger that you experience in your life. Maybe you start to feel like your soul is empty. 
and like you've got nothing within you to persevere in the Christian life. But then you tell yourself, yeah, but Jesus is the bread of life. And I'm going to feast my soul on him today and he's going to get me through. And just like manna fell from the sky to get the Israelites to Canaan, I'm going to feast on the bread of life to get my soul all the way to heaven. And then when you feel like you're in the dark and you're discouraged and you're disappointed and you don't know if there's a, a path forward for you, you say to yourself, yeah, but Jesus is the light of the world. And he's going to make a way where there is no way. And he's going to get me all the way to where God is taking me in life. And when you're starved for hope in a hopeless world, you tell yourself, yeah, but Jesus is the good shepherd. And he's going to feed my soul full of truth the way a good shepherd feeds his sheep. And when you fear death, you come to the tomb of Lazarus and you look him in the eye. And your Savior looks at you all the way down into your soul. And he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me, yet he shall never die. Friends, if we're going to be named after something, if we're going to be named after someone, let's have it be our Savior. Let's not have it be an apostle. Let's not have it be a a church leader or a politician or an Instagram influencer. Let's have it be the only one worthy of following, Jesus Christ. Well, lastly, I want us to see the evidence of grace. Look with me at verse 27. It says, now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. What was the evidence that God's grace had made insiders of outsiders? Love. Sacrificial love, to be exact. The evidence that a person has been loved by God is that he can love like God. The Apostle John wrote, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. And Jesus said this, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this also All people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And the truth is that non-Christians give when people are in need as well, don't they? You think about the earthquake in Haiti. Or you think about Hurricane Katrina that just ripped through New Orleans or Louisiana or Mississippi and Alabama, etc. But friends, who is giving to who here in Acts 11. Well, Gentile Christians are giving to Jewish Christians. And you think about the fact that for thousands of years, the Jews would call us Gentiles dogs. Couldn't you imagine them, imagine them getting saved 
and then thinking to themselves, well, we need resources for ourselves. We need resources for our families and for our kids. Or if they want our stuff, they can come down and get it. But they knew the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for their sake he became poor, so that by his poverty they might become rich. And we might talk all day long about the doctrines of grace, but the way to know whether grace has made you an insider is really how you love those who are in need. Friends, this is the MO of insiders. This is the the, st- the standard lifestyle of an insider. This is how insiders behave towards other insiders. And so since the last part of every Christian to get saved is his wallet, I want to give us one incentive to give from the past and one incentive to give from the future. What's the incentive for us to give to those in need from the past? Well, friends, it is the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. And that since that Jesus has poured out his blood to save us eternally, can we not pour out our resources to save those temporarily? If you want to know how mastered you are by the sacrificial love of Jesus Christ, don't look to the volume by which you sing on a Sunday morning. Look to your spending habits. And look to the way you utilize your money. But friends, there's an incentive for us to give sacrificially that remains in the future. See, Jesus said this, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you a drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you? Or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. 
And then they also will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, truly, I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Friends, I am well aware that that passage has been abused in the past. I am also well aware that that passage is still in our Bibles. And if we dislike it now, we will dislike it more when it is fulfilled before our very eyes. Alexander the Great once learned that in his army, a soldier was named after him. The problem was this soldier wasn't really known for his courage, but instead for his cowardice. Alexander the Great found him and he said, is your name Alexander and are you named after me? The man said, yes, sir. My name is Alexander and I was named for you. Alexander said, then either be brave or change your name. Now, thanks be to God, Jesus is more gracious with us than that. And he's kind and he is loving and he is gentle and he is wise. But friends, let's get the point of that illustration. If we are Christians, then let us love like Christ loved us. And let us behave the way insiders are called to behave. Why? Because it was grace that made a way for us inside the kingdom in the first place. Dr. David Otis Fuller once said this, if you were arrested for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Amen.